Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking to the journalist and author Anne Applebaum about her remarkable new book, Twilight of Democracy. It's about Britain, it's about America, it's about Spain, it's about Hungary, but we start in Poland. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable, from Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. We recorded this conversation with Anne a couple of days ago. She is in Poland. There was an election at the weekend for the Polish presidency. A big part of the story of her book is about what's happened to Polish democracy over the last 20 years. And so we started by talking about what's happening in Polish democracy today. And your book starts in Poland with the party that you and your husband threw on Millennium Night. So that's a bit more than 20 years ago for a wide circle of your friends whom you describe as broadly on the right, that is the anti-communist, liberal, pro-European right. And now you're not speaking to quite a few of those people. You say you cross the road to avoid some of them. And some of them are now either members or supporters of the current Polish government, the law and justice government. So maybe we should actually start with what happened yesterday in Poland, because the incumbent Law and Justice President, President Duda won the presidential election. It was close. Um, I think it's roughly 51-49, isn't it? That that was the result. So it was closer than Brexit. What's your immediate take on it? Is it another nail in the coffin of that vision you might have had 20 years ago for Poland? or, Or should we focus more on the fact that it was really close? I'm unfortunately rather pessimistic this morning. You know, the election was proof once again that really divisive, angry culture war politics of a kind that actually I think we haven't even had in the UK to this extent can succeed. Um, it was a very it was a very ugly election. The main theme around which it turned was LGBT, which is a phrase that's used in Polish and it sounds very foreign and strange in Polish because it's of course an English acronym. Probably the most discussed moment of the campaign was when the current president, Andrzej Duda, declared that LGBT was nothing to do with people. These were not people. They were an ideology, and it was an ideology worse than communism. And, you know, with this kind of signaling to his voters who are significantly, I should say, older and more rural than the voters for the opposition, he seems to have ginned up their enthusiasm and and persuaded many, particularly older people, to vote who hadn't voted in the earlier round of the of the presidential elections. This kind of politics, in other words, creating anger, pumping out angry messages and emotional messages to people, is a form of politics that in Poland was created by the current ruling party. And the ruling party's name is Law and Justice. And as you say in my book, I, I start out by saying that a lot of the 
people, I mean, really, actually, in fact, it's the propagandists of law and justice, the, the, the sort of journalists and the feuilletonists and the, and the people who create law and justice propaganda. A lot of those people are people I know or knew 20 years ago, and some of them were at my New Year's Eve party. I mean, the New Year's Eve party is just a kind of metaphor. You know, it's, it's not really a book about my party, it's a, but it's a, it's a metaphor for a, you know, describes a political camp that was once united and is now very deeply split. And so some people who were at that party and parties like it, you know, work for law and justice and some are equally devoted to the political opposition. I mean, the real danger of this election is that it now gives the ruling party three more years to continue on its program, which actually it's openly stated, which is going to be the next step will be to try and dismantle and undermine the independent press so that it doesn't exist anymore and to continue the process of packing the courts so that there's no independent judiciary anymore and generally to keep repression on independent businessmen, people who the party perceives as any kind of threat. You know, that's been continuing for the last several years, but there are no more elections for three more years. Um, and this now will, I'm afraid, allow them to complete the job. Duda's opponent, Traskowski, they're men of the same age, as I understand it. They're both 48. So they would have been children and teenagers under the communist regime. They would have been students in the immediate post-Cold War world. They've come to represent it in the coverage of it in the British press. It's often described as the two Polands, so the rural, older versus the more metropolitan or cosmopolitan and younger Poland. But might those two men once have broadly been on the same side? I mean, is the division between these two men of the same generation at all emblematic of what you describe at the start of your book? Or, or were they always representing the two Polands? They were both teenagers at the time of the fall of communism, so they're just slightly younger. They're kind of five or six years younger than my friends, um, five, ten years younger, let's say. But yes, I imagine that both of them probably come from families that were pro-solidarity. Actually, Cheskowski was a youth activist in his school at, in the late 1980s. I'm sure that Duda's family was you know, pro-solidarity and anti-communist. So yes, in a very broad sense, they both come out of the anti-communist camp. Um, and what you are seeing in Poland actually now is the ongoing ideological battle of the descendants from that camp. I mean, interestingly, in the first decade after the fall of communism in Poland, the big political division, if there was one that can be easily described, was between former communists and former anti-communists. The former communist party has now basically disappeared. I mean, that's why there isn't really a left-wing party in Poland. And the two remaining political parties are the center, which is former center-right and former center-left, against this, you know, what I would call a kind of radical right nativist party, which is what Duda represents. But yeah, I mean, I think the thrust of your question is correct. Yes, they both, 30 years ago, they would have both been on the same side. Absolutely. And I've met people in Hungary, I'm sure you know these people better than I do, who were students at the same time as Orban. Again, Orban's a little bit older, I think, but a young man at the time of the end of the Cold War, people who thought that they were broadly on the anti-communist liberal side with Orban discovering that this huge gulf that's now opened up is as big as any gulf that they experienced back then. And with Orban, and as you say, with this recent campaign and, and more broadly in the recent history of both Poland and Hungary, the former politics is organized around basically these kinds of conspiracy theories. I mean, with Orban, there's a huge focus on Soros, the New World Order. It is explicitly anti-Semitic. In the Polish case, 
there's this slight twist, I guess, with the LGBT emphasis, but also some of the same tropes appear. And it's really systematic. And you said we haven't quite seen it yet. And maybe we won't see it in, in Britain. People do think of Trump as a conspiracy theorist too, but it still feels to me like there's something systematic about the, the Polish or Hungarian version. These, oh, yes. these are all-encompassing systems of thought. Yes, they're a little bit different from kind of total ideologies. So the new illiberal way of thinking doesn't demand that you accept a completely false picture of the entire world, the way, for example, communism did, Soviet-style communism, you know, in which you had to pretend that the economy was good even when it wasn't, and you had to continually pay homage to the leader and so on. These new, I, I don't even want to call them ideologies because that's not really what they are, um, in my book, I call them sort of medium-sized lies. They're not big lies. They're not systemic lies. They're sort of medium-sized lies. They don't require that you devote your whole life to them. You, they require that you accept a few false stories about who you are and what your country is. As you say, in the, in the Hungarian case, the, the, the sort of medium-sized lie is sort of unoriginal. I mean, it's about George Soros and the plot to undermine Hungary by importing immigrants into Hungary, which is led by Soros, who is Jewish. And so there's a Jewish plot to undermine the Hungarian state. And that's pushed constantly in all kinds of different ways. And you can believe in ordinary economics and you can go about your daily business and accept this conspiracy theory without it disrupting all the rest of your life. So it's a little bit different from the totalitarian theories of the past. In Poland, the conspiracy theory, the original version of the conspiracy theory is a bit more original. And this was based around a plane crash in 2010, which killed the president, the then president of Poland, who happens to be the twin brother of the current leader of the law and justice of the ruling party, and a set of conspiracies that evolved around that. And what I think Kaczynski, who is his brother, the leader in Mount Poland, learned from the experience of pumping out this doubt about the plane crash and was it really caused by the Russians and was it really caused by, did the current then Polish government play some role in it? What he learned is that you can use conspiracy theories to undermine people's trust and faith in institutions. So if you, know, if you tell people that there's a secret plot and the government of your country has been involved in murdering your president you know, on a plane in Russia... And the media has taken part in this conspiracy and state institutions have taken part in it and the military has taken part in it. If you can convince even 25% of the population, which is probably about the amount that believed in it, that this happened, then you have a kind of group of supporters who will go along with all kinds of things. Because once they believe that, then they can believe that all kinds of other terrible things are being done to them or are being carried out behind their backs without their knowledge. Um, so the use of these conspiracy theories is very, very important for these kinds of leaders. And your reference to Trump is actually, I think, is very accurate. I mean, Trump has also sought to use all kinds of conspiracy theories. And I mean, at the moment, he's flirting with a particularly strange one. Um, British listeners may not be aware of the QAnon conspiracy in the United States, which is very bizarre kind of set of theories about pedophilia and secret sex games and Trump is going to protect America from these secret pedophiles, okay? But there's a strain of it. There are big online followings, Facebook followings for these kinds of theories. Trump occasionally alludes to it. He tweets references to it. You know, he he clearly also wants to use this kind of 
talk to help him win re-election. And of course, he's been using made-up stories and invented theories and false information of all kinds, you know, ever since he's been president. I mean, the Washington Post has a fact checker who keeps track of the number of times he says something that's not true, whether in Twitter or in her speech. I mean, it's something like 20,000 now. Um, so this is what he, this is how he, this is how he, how he regularly runs. I mean, in Britain, I suppose the closest thing, and this is irrespective of the merits of, of the arguments, where there were some aspects of the Brexit campaign that also did this. There was a, if you look at the kind of Facebook advertising that was used, the kind of language, you know, not just on Facebook, but, you know, if if we stay in the EU, we'll be flooded by immigrants, you know, we'll be forced to accept millions of Turks in our country. Some of that was the same. It had the same structure of false belief. I mean, that was definitely, it was definitely part of the Brexit campaign. And actually, to some degree, I mean, that's how Brexit fits into this story. I'm sure you're right that the rationale behind it is similar. And certainly in Trump's case, what we're seeing here is an attempt to undermine people's confidence in institutions, because that makes it easier to do this kind of politics. And yet, as you say, if we're talking about 20,000 lies, there's something with Trump deeply unsystematic about it. It's it's almost random, and it's profoundly opportunistic. I always feel with Trump that he'll tell a lie about anything. He doesn't care. And it doesn't have to add up. In fact, you'd have to really be a genius to, to weave a story out of those 20,000 lies that made sense. Whereas in the Polish and Hungarian cases, though I, I'm sure you're right, it's not anything like a total ideology. It does seem to be much more systematic. And then I was thinking, and you write about this in your book, at the lowest possible level, in a way, you knew Boris Johnson when he was a journalist for The Telegraph working in Brussels. He wasn't really spinning conspiracy theories as such. They weren't really theories. It was as opportunistic as you can get. He was a, a hack coming up with and stretching and maybe stretching the truth about stories to do with the EU's you know, attempts to regulate and to control and to do ridiculous things. And Johnson is completely opportunistic in that sense. So there's a kind of spectrum from the opportunistic to the systematic. Do, do you think it does kind of run from Johnson all the way through to Orban, or, or, or are the differences bigger than the, the similarities? I mean, that's a kind of judgment call. But yeah, you could argue that it's the same way of doing politics. It's kind of create an external enemy. I mean, in Boris Johnson's case, it was more, let's make up ridiculous stories that, the, you know, I don't know, the EU is trying to ban our prawn cocktail crisps or, you know, make us give up our red buses. Or and there was a whole series of stories like that, or he would use a report put out by an EU bureaucrat and kind of twist it into a funny story. Um, and I think actually Bo Johnson genuinely started out doing it for laughs. I don't think he had any sinister intent, in, you know, in the beginning. So yes, in that sense, he's different from Kaczynski, who I believe has deliberately set out to create a conspiracy theory and who, you know, and his party has just run this political camp that was very deliberately designed to convince elderly and rural Poles that a dangerous sexual ideology was coming to take away their children and wreck their families. I mean, it's a deeper and more profound level of cynicism. But the structure of the argument, you know, is sort of there. You know, there's this foreign entity and it's destroying and it's, and of course, you know, at base, all of these things are touching on very deep feelings that people have of identity. You know, the EU is destroying our Britishness or the the LGBT rainbow plague, which is a phrase used by the Archbishop of Krakow recently, you know, is trying to undermine our 
way of life. And so the the structure is there's an outside force that's trying to undermine us and our party can we will defend your identity, we will stick by you. We will prevent this, you know, this dangerous LGBT ideology or these dangerous Brussels bureaucrats from taking away who you are, really. I mean, so a lot of it is silly and some of the stories that Boris Johnson wrote were just funny or ridiculous. But again, they reach people in a very deep way. You know, the, they affect people's sense of who they are and their identity. And, and of course, this is how elections are now won. Um, and once, you know, once elections become about identity, and they're not about who has the better way to run the economy, which is what elections used to be about, or at least partly. Once they're mostly about identity, then the question of how to fight them and how to win them and what happens after them begins to change. I mean, if we're all having an argument about whether the state should be larger or smaller, right, which is what used to be the center of the right-left division in Europe and the United States, you know, then, okay, one side wins or the other side, but, you know, the argument can continue. But if the argument is about who gets to be an American, you know, who is really Polish, then after the election is over, the feelings don't die down, you know, because if one side wins, aha, we're really Polish and the other side who lost aren't Polish. And therefore we have the right to begin to exclude them from institutions and to chuck them out of politics. And so that is the way in which this kind of politics has changed democracy and has profoundly damaged democracy by allowing whoever wins using this language, the sense of legitimacy. These people aren't really Polish. They are traitors that we can therefore undermine them. We can send police to arrest them. We can investigate what they're doing. We can take away their newspapers. They have no right to speak in public. They aren't the equivalents of us. And that's the logic behind the law and justice government. And do you think that logic can stand up to a 51-49 result? So I saw that Taleki, I think he's called, the, the law and justice leader in the parliament, said of the result, half of polls made a mistake. So you know, 49% is a large number of people not to count as Polish. And, and for people who take a more hopeful read of that election, and we saw some of these arguments around Brexit too, 52-48, it's hard to sustain when you've only got just over half the people behind you? It's hard to sustain, but look, the, the Tory party has sustained it. I mean, we yeah. now, you know, in Britain, there's a government run by Brexiteers and they, as far as I can tell, I mean, it's, you know, it's only July, so, you know, we'll see. But as far as I can tell, may well be heading for a hard Brexit in January, yeah. um, which is not something anybody voted for. It's with something only promoted by a very small minority of people. And yet that may be the way the country goes. So this very small, in fact, unpopular minority might win this argument and they might have the kind of Brexit they want, you know, very destructive and very abrupt. And so they did win. And in Poland, you know, look, I, it's, it's early days. I mean, the election was only a couple of days ago, but there certainly are people in the ruling party who now think that they're going to use the next three years to, as I said, they want to take over independent television. They want to take over the independent press. They will now use the security forces to harass, you know, opposition leaders and lawyers who bother them. I mean, I know people who are talking about leaving the country, I mean, because they're afraid of what will happen now. So we're, it's a little bit more advanced, I think, than most people outside of Poland realize. I mean, there's a, the government has tools it can use to harass you. Um, or businessmen in particular. Businessmen, for example, who own opposition newspapers. 
you know, who are now afraid that the government will come after them or businessmen who advertise in opposition newspapers or not even, sorry, I'm using the expression opposition newspapers. I just mean independent newspapers, any newspapers. They are afraid that the government will come after them. They'll harass them. They'll deny them licenses or whatever they need for other parts of their business. And this is now, you know, it's a very vengeful state. And once you have people in power who are willing to do that, then, you know, all kinds of things may happen. I mean, there's almost certainly the opposition will now fragment. People are going to start arguing about why they lost. People will say, well, the, the, the main opposition party is no good. We need to form a new party. That's, there are already voices like that which is what happened in Hungary, by the way. One of the reasons why Orban keeps winning is the rest of the political system is fragmented. That's almost certainly going to happen in Poland too. And then it becomes very, very hard, even for 49%, even for 49% to fight back. I mean, we really underestimate the tools that a determined government can use to hijack the system if it really wants to, if it's really bent on you know, sort of the undemocratic use of the instruments of the state, then there's a lot that can be done, particularly, I would say, in smaller countries. You know, this is much harder in the United States where you have many other centers of power. You know, in the United States, the governor of California is an extremely powerful person with all kinds of financial and institutional and other tools that he can use. It's a big and decentralized country in many ways. So the ability of the American president to, to take over the system is much more limited. And In Poland, though, you know, or frankly, even the UK, you know, these are smaller, more centralized countries where the central government has a lot to say and and can achieve a lot just by the the malevolent use of or abuse of institutions. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the Brexit case, there are two sides. To, I mean, I think it's true across the piece of what you describe in your book. There are two sides to the story. So there is the the way you start, which is a group of people who might have thought that they had something fundamentally in common discovering over the last 20 years that they are profoundly divided. But at the same time, you have people that you might have thought were very divided coming together. And you describe beautifully through the Brexit case, just the range of different kinds of conservatives and not just conservatives who coalesce around this improbable project. I mean, Johnson, the opportunistic journalist is one kind. Then you've got the people who you talk about who really have imbued a kind of feeling of despair nostalgia, a kind of almost middle European sense that the world is going to hell. You've got people like Roger Scruton, who you write about, kind of very English philosophers with a deep sense of nostalgia. And then you've got people like Dominic Cummings, who is different from all of those. David Cameron famously called him a Maoist. He wants to tear the whole thing down. And almost as striking as the divisions that have opened up is how that project brought together 
Johnson, Scruton and Cummings. They haven't got a lot in common. No, that's very true. Uh, you know, Scruton is a slightly separate case. You know, Scruton you know, was not involved politically himself. I mean, I write about him because in his one of his books is a really extraordinary book. It's called England and Elegy. And I actually recommend you read it if you, <laughs> for those of you who haven't. And it's a very despairing description of, I mean, he describes it as a funeral oration for my country. You know, it's about an England that has died and can't be revived. And although it's a it's extreme version of that case, I think it is something that people felt very deeply, that there was something disappearing or they were losing something in the modernization of Britain that would never return. And then people like Cummings and Johnson and others then took that deep sentiment and manipulated it for political gain, I would say. I suppose the, the slight anomaly of the book is, I, you know, I don't think Brexit is as you know, it's somehow a less fundamental issue than than the ones we're struggling with in Poland and Hungary, because it was never as if democracy itself was on the table in the same to the same degree. But some of the aspects of the story are the same. In other words, the way in which politicians, journalists, propagandists manipulated these deep feelings and these deep nostalgia for a different era and this fear of the outside that some people have and manipulated that into a political campaign and then sort of rode that campaign to power. And so really the thing that unites the Brexiteers is this way in which they used for their very different reasons. I mean, whatever Johnson's ambitions or Cummings' ambitions are probably very different, but they use this reservoir of deep feeling in order to put themselves in charge. You know, in that sense, it's similar to the Polish story. You do raise this very interesting question about Roger Scruton, and you're right, he, he's not involved in politics in the way that the others were. And in fact, his political involvement was um, in Czechoslovakia in the 1980s uh, as part of that anti-communist Western form of conservatism. But you yeah, do that's how raise I met this, him, I should be. Yeah. yeah. And you asked this question about him, but it could apply to others too, the, 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 the nostalgic, elegiac strain, the kind of what we've lost England rather than Britain, worried about the way the world is going, its increasing globalization, technologization, and so on. There is a way that that argument could be a defense of the European Union, or at least could see that the European Union, which does try to protect local traditions, that does provide a kind of bulwark against some of the forces of globalization. And you could be a conservative, and indeed there were many conservatives, for whom the European Union was a protection against the forces that they were most worried about and a world in which either China or the United States or maybe Russia dominates. And yet that strain of conservatism seemed to, it never got going. It just, it it had no traction. But as you put it, it could have, couldn't it? It could have done. I mean, there, you know, you can imagine a world in which conservatives stood up for the European Union because it perfected, you know, it sought to, you know, protect traditional farming. It was a bulwark against, you know, as you say, China, America, the forces of, you know, big capitalism, globalization. And so, I mean, that's actually how the European Union is perceived in a lot of European countries. I mean, it's a, that's a longer argument, whether well, it's not everywhere, but that's what certainly the European Union's much mocked and disliked common agricultural policy. That's what it was set up for. I mean, including so perceived by up, conservatives. Yeah, it was set up to preserve traditional farms and which it 
for better or for worse, it, you know, it does or it doesn't, depending on how well you think it does. But, you know, the question is, why didn't British conservatives join that and and seek to use it, you know, to protect the things that they cared about? I mean, my guess is that fundamentally, for conservatives, the European Union always felt like something foreign. You know, it wasn't a thing that we joined and therefore we are part of and we've created it. And therefore, you know, we can fully participate in it and so on. It was always felt in Britain like a foreign thing being thrust upon us. I mean, and even the way in which people spoke about it, you know, Brussels bureaucrats have decided X or Y. That's actually not how the European Union works. Brussels bureaucrats don't decide things. The body that decides things is the European Council, which is the group of prime ministers who are the sort of executive body of the EU. You know, the the commission just carries out the orders of the council. And there, you know, there aren't laws or, or rules that come out of Brussels that haven't at some point been signed off on by all the member states. I mean, that's the point of it. The laws are the enactment of the decisions of the council, which is the prime ministers. And yet, you know, the, the Brexiteers successfully sold the idea that Brussels has forced us to do this or that thing, even when, as I say, at some stage, a British politician would have signed off on whatever that thing was. I mean, it's true that sometimes there were arguments over which direction the European Union should go, and sometimes Britain lost the argument, although actually it was a percentage-wise very seldom. But on the other hand, sometimes Britain won. And yet it was that negotiation, that idea that we have to co-decide things with other people that I think was just fundamentally unacceptable to a certain breed of nostalgic British conservative. And, you know, at the end of the day, that was more important and that was a deeper feeling than the question of, you know, is the common agricultural policy protecting our farms? In your book, you also, you you go outside of the Trump Brexit case and the the Eastern European case, you also talk about what's happening in Southern Europe. You describe the Vox Party in Spain, another nativist, populist, conspiratorial movement. You talk to one of its founders. The echoes there are clear with what's going on elsewhere. And yet you could look at places like Spain, Portugal, Greece, countries where in the living memory of roughly half the population there was no democracy in countries that were relatively recently authoritarian regimes that have been through the traumas of the Eurozone crisis, everything that's happened since 2008, and in the Greek case, a kind of social collapse. And yet democracy there is intact. In some ways, democracy in places like Spain and Portugal and Greece has proved surprisingly robust in the face of these kinds of forces. There is at least possibly another way of looking at the twilight of democracy, which is it's not, though we see the echoes across all these different states, the trajectory looks a bit different in different places. At least it does to me. No, no, I agree with that. I mean, to some degree, I mean, the the degree to which these forces win or lose in different countries is so dependent on the local situation and so on. I mean, in, in Spain, there is an, an oddity, which is, you know, although, as you say, Spanish democracy which is relatively recent, right? It dates from the 1970s, you know, has has held up. There is this feeling in Spain of very profound fragmentation. You know, they had these kind of two, a center-right and a center-left party that dominated Spanish politics for most of the post-Franco era. There is now this broad, much broader spectrum, wide fragmentation, a lot of difficulty forming governments, 
and therefore a lot of growing discontent with democracy in Spain. You know, it's not working and we can't come to an agreement. And, and we, have, of course, had the Catalan crisis, which really emphasized this problem even more and it's a different kind of polarization. So although you're right that it's held up fine so far, I mean, the, you know, one of the arguments of the book is that nobody should be complacent, that these forces exist in all of our democracies, any sort of anti-democratic instincts, impulses. They play out differently in different places. I'm not making, you know, the book is not a big argument about, you know, there's no single unifying thesis. There's no <laughs> um, single twilight. So there's no single twilight. I mean, it must actually be a very annoying book for political scientists to read because there isn't a kind of final conclusion and there aren't any policy recommendations and so on, you know, but the, that's but the point like is that it, these, I should say. <laughs> right. the arguments and the emotions are playing themselves out in very similar ways in different countries. And, you know, whether they win or lose depends on people in those, in all those countries. I mean, frankly, you know, you could have, I could have included Turkey. I could have written about the Philippines. This isn't even a Western problem. It's just that I wanted the book to be at least partly about my personal experience. So I wrote about the countries that I know or I've been to, and that was the US and Europe. And indeed, it could have been about India, the biggest democracy of India, all. India, of course. Many, of many course. Of absolutely. I mean, the, the way in which Modi is using anti-Muslim sentiment in India isn't, frankly, all that different from the way that Orban is using anti-immigrant and anti-Semitism in Hungary. I mean, it's just a, maybe a different scale in India. But it's a it's a similar way of thinking about the world, and it's a similar way of trying to hold one's political coalition together, and a similar way of trying to establish you know who are the real Indians, you know, and who are the usurpers or the traitors, you know, and in countries where you have a genuine religious division like India, where Modi can appeal to the Hindu majority against the Muslim minority, you know, and it's some ways more obvious. I mean. The strange thing, in a way, is that this works in Poland and Hungary, which are actually completely homogenous countries. I mean, Poland is, what, 99% Catholic, depending on how you count, and ethnically homogenous, and there's only one language. And yet, politicians have succeeded in creating tribes within Poland that really, you know, bitterly hate each other, don't speak to each other. And, and the division has broken up families. You know, people don't speak to their parents or their children. So it's really quite profound how deep this kind of politics can affect people. And, you know, it's very easy to go to a place like India and say, well, of course, it's natural this would happen because you have all these different cultures and languages living aside, you know, alongside one another. But, you know, look, it happened in 100% homogenous Poland as well. Yeah, it's the tyranny of small differences in a way that can make it worse. I want to ask a couple of questions to finish. So you talk in the book about a view that's probably more prevalent in both Eastern and Southern Europe, because people of a certain age have a literal memory of this, which is that liberal democracy, the end of history, is, is not permanent. And as you say, there's an assumption in many places that history is circular rather than it's all heading in one direction. Things come and they go, and democracy might be one of those things. And yet this same kind of politics is playing out in somewhere like the United States, where, as you say, almost no one thinks that history is circular. They believe in a certain kind, not everyone, of course, but in a certain kind of democratic destiny. And when I was reading your book, I was wondering which is more likely to lead to dangerous outcomes, whether it's better to be the realist and to recognize that democracy is indeed a contingent thing. There's nothing either permanent or inevitable about it or whether it might be better 
to be an American and to believe that there is some destiny at work here because the other view, the realist view, is also potentially a deeply pessimistic view. I now worry that the idealist view, you know, that history is a trajectory and it only goes upwards and you can only, you know, it always goes in one direction is really profoundly dangerous in that that belief has led everybody to become complacent. If you think it can only go one way, then why should you worry about, you know, well, then there are these, I don't know, problems of campaign finance reform and money in politics seem like kind of secondary issues rather than the actual existential (laughs) issues that they really are. You know, in the United States, I think money has profoundly distorted politics, for example, and people become very complacent. You know, it's very easy in a prosperous Western democracy to completely check out of politics altogether. And actually, you know, lots of people do. You know, one of the most remarkable things in Poland really is that you have this profoundly divided country. People are really angry about politics. And the election campaign was very hard fought and lots of anger and ill will and so on. And yet 30 percent of the country of registered you know, potential voters didn't vote. So that's 30 percent of people who just don't care who runs their country or who makes their laws or what happens. You know, that's a percentage that you get. I mean, I think it's higher, much higher than that in the United States. So, you know, the danger is that because of complacency, because, you know, our lives are all kind of relatively good compared to people in other places, and and because we have this sense of inevitability and, oh, everything will be fine, you know, I don't really have to do anything, you can lose your democracy that way. That's really the only conclusion that the, my book has, which is don't think like that, <laughs> um, because, you know, history shows us that democracies fail, and you've written about this beautifully. And history shows us that if you neglect rotting institutions, they can bring you down. And, you know, I think something like this has happened in the United States and we're at risk of it everywhere else in Europe as well. I think I agree. And yet the other way the argument could go is that in the places where people have really imbibed the idea that history is circular and nothing is permanent, you can get a deep cynicism. So the risk one way is complacency. The risk the other way is cynicism. Including deep cynicism about democracy. The risk everywhere is cynicism. Right. (laughs) You know, complacency, (laughs) cynicism, nihilism. Those are the risks in every society. But you don't look at Polish politics now or Hungarian politics now uh, and the Putinism that lies behind some of that as more profoundly cynical. I mean, isn't... Putin-style politics more deeply cynical even than what's going on in the United States at the moment? Oh, yes. I mean, of course. I mean, you know, Putin is also somebody who has deliberately created fake issues for people to focus on as a way of distracting them from the, the failures, essentially, of his political system as well as its profound corruption. I mean, in some ways, Putin is the father of this kind of politics. You know, he he worked it out first. I think he or he, I mean, I'm saying he, but it's really the, you know, it's it's his system. The Kremlin was the first to begin experimenting with social media and the way in which social media can be used to repeat messages and themes that divide and distract people and prevent them from focusing on actual issues and in their real lives that can be fixed and instead feeding them, you know, alternate stories, you know, culture wars and, I mean, in his case, real wars that can get them involved in arguments about making Russia great again or 
beating non-existent Ukrainian Nazis. So yeah, I think he's the, you know, it's profoundly cynical. To, to, but, and that's, but there's cynicism on both sides. I mean, there's cynicism in the in the camp of those who are doing this kind of politics. And believe me, I mean, the Polish ruling party is profoundly cynical. I mean, the, I didn't think actually they even care one way or the other about LGBT or gay rights. You know, the, it's just an issue they're using to divide people and to motivate their supporters. But there's also the cynicism of people who just don't do politics at all. Oh, it doesn't matter who wins and all politicians are the same and they're all corrupt. Doesn't matter. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's an equal, different danger. When you look back to that party 20 years ago, it's, it sets up the book. You end with another party, a more recent one, in some ways, you know, offering a different kind of hopeful vision of the ways in which people might come together. But when you look back 20 years from this cynical world we're in now, do you feel the pull of a kind of nostalgia? Do you feel elegiac? Do you feel cultural despair when you think about how the world looked in 1999 <laughs> compared to now? I feel nostalgia because I was younger then and that was a really fun era to live in. I mean, I think everybody, and it was a fun party. I mean, you know, and, and that was a, you know, the nineties were a great time in my life. So in that sense, yeah, sure. I feel, I feel nostalgia for it. You know, do I wish that moment back in time? No. I mean, I, I, if I had it back again, I would probably do a lot of it differently. I would see the mistakes that were being made that I couldn't see at the time. And so I don't wish back the 90s. I would like to think about them and I would like to study that era in order to understand better what went wrong and how we can fix it. But, um, but no, I'm not, I'm not nostalgic in that sense. Anne's book is Twilight of Democracy. Its subtitle is The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends. And it is about friendship as well as about politics. I really do recommend it. And Applebaum is also a writer for The Atlantic, and you can read her journalism there, including her writing about the most recent developments in European and American democracy. We will tweet the link to both the book and the journalism at tppodcast underscore. You can also find it, as always, in our show notes. Next week, as a break from the relentless press of news and events, we're going to go back to the very first episode we ever recorded of Talking Politics and revisit a conversation that I had with Yuval Noah Harari about the future of the human race. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Duda's opponent, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce his name right, Truskowski, is that right? Truskowski. <laughs> Truskowski. Okay, that's close. I'm going to say that that's again. That's good, very good. <laughs> imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.